Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning and so glad to be back here. And I'm very grateful for your church here in the Abbeville community, just the good gospel work that I know that you do week in and week out. I'm especially grateful for your pastor. Zach is one of the best friends that I have. And uh, we get together probably once or twice a month for lunch and uh, just build each other up. He's always a big encouragement to me. I'll be honest to you, your pastor is a great preacher of the word. He handles the word so well. And uh, I've come to the point where I believe it's important for me to sit under the preaching of the word. And more often than not, Zach is the guy that I turn to every week to listen to. Uh, just the encouragement that comes from the word, the way that he handles it. And you are just tremendously blessed to have him as a pastor. When we meet for lunch, I think one of the things that I see isn't just what a great pastor or a great preacher he is, but what a great pastor he is, because I hear his heart for you and the love that he has for you and the affection that he has for you. And you are greatly blessed in that. Um, don't tell him I said all that. I'd rather him just think I'd like to pick on him about Clemson right now. Is that too soon? No? Okay. As a Georgia fan, it was beautiful to me, you know, but... All right, Acts 17 this morning. Acts 17 in your copy of God's Word. We live in a time right now where we are an information-intense society. Probably in all of human history, there have never been people who've had as much information coming at us day in and day out like we have. No longer is it a weekly paper or even a daily paper that you might read in the morning. You've got 24-hour news cycles. You've got 24-hour news channels. And it's always bombarding us day in and day out. You've got multiple social media streams that many of us are tapped into. And when you look at those social media streams, you realize that there are hundreds of people who are sharing their views as facts Day in and day, not even day in and day out, just throughout the day. And of course, we know that everything that we read on the internet is true, right? And that all of those facts and that all of those opinions are true, absolutely not. But they're coming at us in a hundred different ways. We have more information at our fingertips now than we've ever had. If you think about that, we also realize that we are now conditioned really to have everything explained to us in two to three minutes. It's the uh, Instagram reel, the TikTokification of America, if you want to call it, to where, hey, explain it to me in two or three minutes, and, and you'll probably see that in your own life, how you might lose interest in something after a minute or two if it doesn't grab you immediately. I know I experienced this. There's a website that I like to read. It's called the Gospel Coalition. They'll have these great articles on there for especially for pastors, and uh, they might be talking about theories of sanctification, or they might be talking about this or that. And I'll begin to read that article, and this is what will happen. I'll start to read it, and after a minute or two, I'm like, eh, and I'll exit out of it, and I'll go do something else. I don't read it all the way through, and I don't engage with it deeply. So with with these shorter or with this intense amount of information that we have coming, Research is showing that we have a shorter attention span as well. That shorter attention span will throw us if we're not careful. We'll actually do something that is a a tendency of human beings in their reading, especially when it comes to God's Word. We'll take something that we're used to doing and that we might have spent 10 or 15 or 20 minutes in at one point and we get bored after a few minutes. We'll talk more about that as we go 
through this. As you look at all this information that we have coming at us, a lot of it is skewed, actually. I teach part-time at Greenwood Christian. I teach history, government, economics, and Bible. And I see this, especially in history class, I've got a, a student or two who are very, very, very knowledgeable about history. And, and I'll be, t- and they're ahead of me a lot of times. And they're telling me what's about to happen. And the thing is, they know so much, but so many times it's just a little bit off. They got their information from a family member. They got their information from the internet or from a social media posts or something along those lines. And it's just a little bit off. We see this in so many ways. So in this day of mass communication and loose facts, we can't afford as God's people to just be told what is true. We need to know it ourselves. We need to be people who will search it out for ourselves. We need to be people who are are like the people that we're going to meet here on Paul's second gospel mission. In the city of Berea. Now this is probably a familiar passage to you. And one that you've heard preached numerous times before I'm sure. But I pray that the Lord would make this fresh to you. And there would be an encouragement to you as well. Let's look at it here. Acts 17. And we're going to pick up in verse 10. Acts 17 verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent... Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. You know, if you were to put, a, put this into a thought, like a thought that would summarize this, I call it a take-home thought, it would be this, wise people intensely and eagerly engage with Scripture. Wise people intensely engage with Scripture. We'll see this as we move through this passage today. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me if you'll ask the Lord to speak to you. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I pray that you would give every person here what I cannot give them. That is spiritual help. Lord, I pray that those who need to be encouraged would be encouraged. Those who need to be instructed would be instructed. Uh, If conviction needs to happen, I pray that you would bring that, but I pray at the end of it that we would find our hope in Jesus. Lord, protect me from my flesh and my pride. Lord, help me to not speak with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And I pray that you would do this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. For us to understand this passage, we need to look at what's going on here within the book of Acts itself. I've been preaching through this book at our church, and it helps to go back to the beginning to look at the context of what's happened here. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's given his disciples the mission, take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, take the gospel to the end of the earth. But it wasn't just preaching that he wanted them to do. We need to ask the question of why 
this book is written at the start. Why this mission? Well, it was the conversion and salvation of sinners so that people would come to faith in Christ so they'd be rescued from their sin and they'd be rescued from hell. But it's more than that. The, the purpose of this book, as you see by the time you get to the end of it, is that Paul and others, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would gather believers into churches that visibly represent Jesus and his kingdom on earth. That's what every gathering of the church is. Yes, we know that the kingdom, and, and however you view the kingdom, we know that's future, that Jesus is coming back to reign one day. But it's also present now, because as citizens of heaven, we gather week in and week out to hear from our king. That's hopefully what is happening here today. And then, having heard from our king, we go into our community to represent him to that community. Paul was one of these converts. He was a Jewish leader who ended up coming to Christ miraculously after he met Jesus. And Paul is the main leader, becomes the main leader of this mission. He had gone on one gospel mission that ended up in Asia Minor. Then he goes on a second gospel mission, and he is now on this second gospel mission. He has ended up in Europe. I don't know if we have the map that we were going to look at here. Is that up there by any chance? You can see right here. Uh, Paul has been up in Philippi over on the left-hand side. Thessalonica is the city before this. And now we're going to be right here in this city called Berea. Berea was about 45 miles from Thessalonica. Uh, One writer said that it was off the beaten path. It was kind of out of the way. And so maybe Paul ends up here because in Philippi and in Thessalonica, all he has had is pushback. All he has had is persecution. Maybe this is a little bit off the beaten path. Maybe he'll be able to get here and have a low-profile work. So what Paul does when he gets here in chapter 17, in verse 10, he does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue. As he goes to the synagogue, he finds something that is surprising, probably. There's no resistance. See, everywhere he'd been before, when he'd go to a synagogue, he'd have people who were open But then you have people who are pushing back as well. But here he finds people who are totally open and who are eager to hear what he is saying. And these people, these Bereans, give us a pattern. Spiritually hungry people show us the way. So this is what we see in here. The Bereans, first of all, show us how to approach the Scripture. Bereans show us how to approach the scripture. Look in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul. He goes to the synagogue. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, when you look at the way that they received this, there are several qualities that we see here. First of all, we see that they were teachable. They were teachable. There's a word that's used here. It's more noble or words that are used. It's more noble. This was originally used as someone who was high, who was of high birth. But it came to mean in, in the Greek language, someone who was open minded and well bred. Berea shows itself to be more noble than those who are in Thessalonica, the city before this, because in Thessalonica, all they want to do is kill him. As a matter of fact, in Thessalonica, they throw this charge at him. You're the one who's turned the world upside down. And and, and you look at that and you understand what's happening there is Paul's not really turning the world upside down. He's actually turning it right side up. 
The world had been uh, broken by the fall of man. And, and the relationship between man and God had been, had been destroyed. And so what Paul is doing with the gospel is he's telling people how they can be reconciled to Christ. And that's what he's doing here as he comes to Berea as well. These are people who are teachable as opposed to those who were in Thessalonica. Now, if this was true of someone who was exploring Christianity, these are people who haven't even believed at this point. If this is true of people who are exploring Christianity, how much more should it be true of people who are mature believers? Hebrews 5.12 talks about the fact that there are, there are believers who are still drinking the milk of the word who should have moved on to meat at this point. I would expect, the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says, I would expect that you would be eating meat, but you're still back here on this shallow milk level. I would have expected that you would people who would be people who would know the scripture and who would have engaged with the scripture more. The people here in Berea, they are willing and they are teachable. They are willing to be convinced by Scripture. They've got their Bible open and they're looking at it. They're checking everything that Paul says. It says it there at the end of verse 11. They were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, what's happening here is Luke, by saying that they are of more noble birth, he is commending these people to us. One person said this, by commending this activity, Luke encourages this searching of the scriptures as a pattern for all believers and also gives support to the doctrine of the clarity of scripture. The idea that the Bible can be understood rightly, not only by scholars, but also by ordinary people who read it eagerly and diligently with conscious dependence on God for help. We call this the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of of Scripture, you, you, every single one of you, with God's help, don't have to be a scholar to understand the Bible. You, every single one of you, can dive deeply into the Scripture yourself and engage with it and understand it. See, I wonder sometimes if you see someone like a pastor like me or Zach, and you stand in the, uh, standing in the pulpit and you say, well, those are the experts. I walk into their office. I got all the books on their wall and everything. They're able to dig deep in ways that I can't. They are the professional. Professional. How does he get those insights? Well, I'll be honest with you. If Zach or if I routinely come in here and come up with insights that you're wondering how in the world we get those, and it's not obvious in the Scripture something is wrong. The insights that come through the preaching of the word, should come from the word of God. And those are insights that you can also get yourself. We call this the priesthood of the believer. That you, because you are reconciled and redeemed by Christ to God, if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, that you can read God's word and you can understand it on your own and you can go to God based on what you have learned and what you have read and you can go to him and pray. You don't need a pastor for that. Now, I'm not minimizing the work of pastors. I'm not minimizing the act of preaching every week. But you yourself can engage on this level. So these believers here, they're teachable. The next thing we see is that they are engaging the word with eagerness. The, the, the word eagerness here has the idea of rushing forward. Think of kids running down the stairs on Christmas morning to get their gifts. There's there's no kid. I'll take this back. I'm going to modify this a little bit. Teenagers might do this. You know, my kids, my younger kids will get up at 
six or seven, and they want to open their presents, and they're trying to get their teenage siblings to come open them, and the teenagers are like, leave me alone, and they want to open them at night. But kids, there's never been a kid at seven o'clock on Christmas morning who's eight years old who's like, do I have to open these presents? Do I have to? There's, there's eagerness, there's rushing down the stairs to go and see these presents, to open these presents. This is something that's not duty-driven. It, it, it happens, okay? Let's be honest. There are times that we struggle with the desire to read God's Word. Am I the only person who struggles with that desire at times? I, it, it's, it's frequent. What happens at times is that there are things that dampen that desire for God's Word, that eagerness. It's not there. I, I don't want to. I would rather do something else. And when I get to that point, I have to pray and ask God, God, would you change my heart? I am choosing something that is temporal, that is not going to last, as opposed to something that is eternal, that's going to help me. And and I pray, and you know what? Sometimes it's an act of faith that I just open my Bible and begin to read. And invariably, when that happens, I open my Bible and I begin to read. God just begins to show me things or remind me of things that I had forgotten Reminds me of what we read in Psalm 119 this morning where he talked about God's word being sweeter than honey. There are times as Christians that God's word is not sweeter than honey. And what we do is we just ask God to restore that joy when it comes to the word of God. They engaged the word with eagerness. The next thing they did was they probed deeply. They probed deeply. Look at what it says in verse 11. They examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. What things? Well, I think what we need to do is go back to verse 2 in this chapter and what Paul did when he was in Thessalonica. He's using the same pattern here that he used when he was in Thessalonica. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 17. Paul went in, this is to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What Scriptures would Paul have been using? What we know is the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Essentially what he's doing here is he's using Old Testament scriptures to probe who the Messiah is. They're looking at these. So Paul has said, Y'all, the Messiah that you're looking for, he's speaking to Jewish people, remember, the rescuer, the anointed one that you're looking for, he's going to have to die. They just couldn't understand that. He's going to have to rise from the dead. And he takes them to the Old Testament, he shows them that. And these Bereans, they're looking at it and they're saying, is this true? That the Messiah is going to have to suffer? Is this true that the Messiah is going to have to rise from the dead? And then Paul comes in and he says, let me tell you it is true and let me tell you who this Messiah is. The way that he puts it there in verse 2 is he proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and that this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Yes, this is who you are looking for. And so they are being, they are, they are challenging themselves to look deeply themselves, probing, investigating. The way that they're looking in the Old Testament here would be a little bit like you watching a mystery or a crime show. Most of us, when we watch something like that, we're trying to figure it out as we go along, right? 
We take this piece of information. We take this piece of information. And when my wife and I are watching one, I say, I bet he did it. He's the one who did. I know. He, no, I think she did it. And, you know, we're going and we're trying to put it together. We're exa- this is exactly what they're doing here. They're looking at the Old Testament. They're looking at the scriptures and figuring out if it is true. Essentially, what Paul is telling them to do is he's telling them to read these scriptures with Jesus at the center. You know, this is something we still do today. When we read the Old Testament, we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. When we read the Gospels, we're looking at what Jesus did. And when we read the epistles, we're looking back on what he did and what it means for us. And then when we read something like Revelation, we're looking for his return. But in all that we do and all that they're doing here, the scripture, you get the idea, is primary to them. It is the main guide for them. These people are described as noble, which has the idea of open-minded. Let me go ahead and say that we should approach the scripture with a blank slate. We call this tabula rasa, a blank slate. It's a slate that's white clean. When we read the scripture and we approach it with a blank slate, we are willing to let the scripture say what it says and not bring our preconceived notions along with us, not bring our cultural notions along with us. We're willing to let the scripture Speak for itself. So that means that we read the scripture with an open mind, willing to let God change our mind so that our lives line up with the word of God. But we want to be open minded. But that doesn't mean that we want to be uncritical. We should always be listening with our Bible open. To any teaching that we receive, you can call this the Ronald Reagan approach. Trust, but verify. Trust. Someone like Zach, but verify. Trust, hopefully, someone like me, but verify from the Scriptures along the way. There are some people that you need to approach with a lot of skepticism. Let's be clear on that. But people you come to trust, listen with an open Bible. Also, as Christians, the fact that we're probing deeply, this shows that we're not going to be gullible. Christians can be gullible. We, by nature, because we believe, and we believe in the supernatural, and we believe the things that we read in Scripture, and some of those things are amazing sometimes, think sometimes that we want to believe. So there are some, and maybe a lot of Christians, if we're not careful and not routinely going to God's Word, we can find ourselves being gullible. Don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Reminds me of this, uh, this lady who invited my wife to this um, party where she was going to be selling things. I'm about to go where no pastor has ever gone before and survived. She was selling essential oils. And this lady, while my wife is there, pulls her catalog out and she's like, hey, If you have this one, this will improve the spiritual mood in your room when you're reading the scripture and this type of thing. And and look, we we know that that there are some some good things that come from that. But this lady, 
I, I mean, she was, and there were ladies that were like, oh, really, man, that would be great. And it was like frankincense, you know, and proves the spiritual vibe in the room. And the coup d'etat was when she told them, she's like, this soap that you use every day, man, it's putting all kinds of impurities in your body. You need some of this soap that I'm using. That, that soap, when you wash with it, it puts a gallon of impurities in your body every time you take a shower. And my wife came home and she was like, that's I've heard. I said, you know, that is kind of crazy. I said, I've weighed myself before I've taken a shower. I've weighed myself after I've taken a shower. A gallon weighs 8.34 pounds. I looked it up just to be sure. A gallon weighs 8.34 pounds. I did not gain 8 pounds in that shower. The ladies are like, give me that soap, give me that soap, give me that soap. Don't, don't be, don't be gullible. Or to put it on an even more spiritual level, I had a coworker once. She walked in one day and she was like, Matt, you know the Holy Spirit is female. I said, really? Female? Yeah, well, what makes you say that? Well, the Holy Spirit's the kind, compassionate uh, side of God. And I said, where did you hear that? Well, I was watching Benny Hinn this morning, and he told me, and and so, you know, we go to the scripture then and say, well, you know, we, uh, God is a spirit and we don't necessarily conceive of him the way that we would conceive of ourselves. But it does say when he is come, he will reprove the sin, the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. In John chapter 16, just have, have your Bible open. Probe deeply on these things. My goal as a pastor with a sermon is summed up this way. Herschel York, he's Dean of Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I know that Zach feels the exact same way. This should be our goal. Not that when we leave that somebody would say, I'm so glad I have a pastor who knows a lot and tells me what everything means. The goal should be for you to leave saying, I see what he said in the text. He taught me how to read and understand the Bible and not just the meaning of the text. They were probing deeply. They were examining in this way. They also did this with intensity. They did this intensely or with intensity. Look at what it says. Verse 11. It says that they were examining the Scriptures how often? Daily. Every day. To see if these things were so. It wasn't casual or laissez-faire. They were engaging with the Scripture on a daily basis. These were people who would come to Christ and would later become healthy Christians because they are engaging with God's Word on a daily basis. Listen, we need to understand what a tremendous privilege that we have to be able to engage with God's Word on a daily basis. Just last month, uh, we, it, we celebrated, it had been over uh, 500 years since there was a man named William Tyndale who was literally burned at the stake because he wanted to translate the Bible into English because the only thing that English people had to read Bible-wise was Latin, and they didn't know Latin. So the Word of God was obscured to them, and people just told them what to believe. And Tyndale died so that he could translate the Bible into English. And now we're to the point where we have multiple translations all over the place, sometimes lying around the house gathering dust. And here we have this great privilege to... Uh, in a teachable way with eagerness, probing deeply and with intensity to engage the Scriptures ourselves. Let me encourage you to take the Berean approach. 
to dig deep. Please, please, please take this in the spirit that it's given, okay? Devotionals are a good thing. They can be helpful. But if we're not careful, we can be devotional Christians who never engage with the Scripture ourselves. We're always reading what somebody else says, and that is our spiritual nourishment for the day. That is like a mama bird getting the worms and regurgitating it into the baby's mouth instead of the baby's getting to the point where they can read, they can care for themselves. I'm not saying that that's that they're bad. I've read my utmost for his highest. I've read other ones. But if that is the only engagement of Scripture you have, if it's only a surface engagement with Scripture, surface reading Christians make surface level Christians when it comes to their spiritual depth and knowledge. If, if we only engage with devotionals, that's like routinely eating an appetizer when you should be eating an appetizer before the steak comes. When you see this, you might ask the question, well, how? I mean, how, how can I engage on this level? I read the Bible. I get lost sometimes. Uh, maybe, maybe you do what I've done and I still do sometimes is uh, I'll, just, I'll just open it and I'll say, oh, I'm going to read till something stands out to me. And, and that's good. I, 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 we're reading the Bible at that point. But how do we know when the thing stands out what it actually means? And if we're understanding it in, in context. I want to give you five simple tools to help you engage the scripture. This is not something that is original to me. I've modified it a little bit. I've got a friend of mine here, Garrett. I'm going to embarrass him. He's sitting on the front row. He's visiting his dad over near McCormick. Uh, Garrett, Garrett, we met um, seven years ago. Has it been that long? A freshman at UGA. And uh, I, won't, I won't go into all that story. It's kind of a funny story. I think he got mad at me when we first met because of something I said. But uh, we ended up studying the Bible together. And I just taught Garrett these five tools. They're very simple. And I saw him apply these five tools in his life and, and engage with the Scripture deeply. And I just saw the immense spiritual growth that came from it. And these are tools that you can use as well. All right, five tools to help you engage the scripture like the Bereans. Number one, clear distractions and prepare your hearts. Clear distractions and prepare your hearts. Um, I, I like, I know I'm in my mid 40s, but I work with high schoolers and college students all the time. I like to think of myself as a rather forward thinking guy. You know, I do a lot of things on the internet. I've got a Mac computer and I know how to transfer files from my phone to my computer over the air. I mean, that's pretty radical, all right? I know how to do all that, but I have found for me personally and really just about everyone I know, if I want to deeply engage with God's word, I need to put my phone down because I'm not going to deeply engage with God's word on my phone typically. Why is that? Notifications coming in. If you're like me, I, I like to do Twitter. Twitter's my thing. It's wild right now. I like to do Twitter. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I, I forgot to look at this. And I'll go, I mean, three minutes in, I'm distracted and I'm doing something else. I found for me personally, I've got to set that out of arm's length and I need to grab a hard copy of God's Word so that I can focus in in a day of immense distraction. We need to put that distraction to the side and then ask God, 
to give you understanding. Clear distractions and prepare your heart. Lord, I am about to read your word. You are speaking to me. Give me understanding here. Number one, clear distractions. Number two, read contextually. Read the scripture contextually. This is what these Bereans are doing here. Uh, Read books of the Bible. Be contextually aware. What do I mean? Well, understand which testament you're reading in. Am I in the New Testament? Am I in the Old Testament? What am I, what am I looking for? Am I looking forward to the coming of Jesus? Am I looking back at Jesus and what he's done? Uh, reading contextually also means that you're going to be asking questions like this. Who, what, when, where, why? Why was this written? And when I say contextually, uh, Old and New Testament, I put covenantally there, which means you know which, which side of the Bible you're on and what you're looking for. Historically, you're going to be asking who, what, when, where, why. Now, uh, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but if you have a good study Bible, you know what you can do at the beginning of that? Say you start to read Second Thessalonians. When you get to Second Thessalonians, a good study Bible is going to have at the beginning of it, the author, the date, the historical circumstances, any theological issues that are there, the theme. Uh, this one has a timeline in it. This one has an outline of it that you can understand. I've seen them with different charts and things. But this is, this is a study Bible. If you'll read that at the beginning of it, you're reading the book and you're understanding the underlying issues that are going on. And so if you read this at the beginning of the study of the book, you don't have to go back and do that over and over. And this is what I found. If I do this at the beginning of the study of every book, pretty soon after a few years of doing that, I get to a book of the Bible and I don't need to do that anymore because I know. I've read it. I, I remember it. Oh, Thessalonica was written to people who were wondering whether Jesus had come back or not. And you've got some people are hanging around on the hillside waiting for him to come back. And some think that he's already come back. And it's a big mess. Oh, Galatians. There are false teachers who are coming in who are telling Gentile believers they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You begin to look at the scripture and you begin to think of it historically within that context. And that is something that you can do. The third thing is you want to dig deep. And when I say dig deep, think of it this way. Read sections of scripture. Read paragraphs. Read chapters. So when you sit down and say, well, here's a section. I'm going to read this section. Or I'm going to read this paragraph and see if I can understand it. Or I'm going to read this particular chapter here. And when you're digging deep, you want to look at what's before it and after it. What I'm saying is avoid just one or two verses. Now, sometimes you'll start to read and you'll get something really good and you'll dig deep on it and you'll, you'll get stuck on one or two verses. But avoid just one or two verses. Write down questions. Circle words. If you don't understand it, read it in another translation. Yes, pick your phone up. Read it in another translation if you need to see if that will help it click. But what we're, what we're doing here is, is we are fighting against our natural tendency and now our cultural tendency to just do everything on a surface level. I'm going to read. I'm going to read a section here. I'm going to focus on this section. Uh, you know, you can you can do this if you develop the discipline. You can do this in about 15 minutes a day uh, of looking at God's word this way. You want to dig deep. The fourth thing you want to do is use a good tool. Now, notice what notice what I haven't mentioned here. 
a commentary. And you don't even have to have a commentary to understand the Scripture as a believer. We have tools that you can use. And so the tool that I would recommend using is a good study Bible. This is an ESV study Bible right here. Um, I've used a Ryrie study Bible. I've used, uh, I've used different ones. This is my favorite one. It is just so incredibly detailed. And this is what you do. You read your passage. You write down your questions. And then you go and you read all the footnotes. Here's the book of Nahum right here. And you might can see it. Here's the text and then here's footnotes on it explaining it. Essentially a mini commentary. Read those footnotes and then look up all the cross-references. Almost every Bible you have is either in the center or on the side going to have cross-references that have a verse number. And those cross-references go with that verse. You know what will happen? If you'll read those footnotes and you'll read those cross-references, the cross-references, when you look them up, will take you to other places in Scripture that tie in with what you're talking about or what you're reading about. It will give you a fuller picture. It'll help you understand more. And if you do that, what will start to happen with the Bible is you won't see it as disjointed books, like Genesis, Genesis all the way to Revelation with disjointed books. You'll begin to see how they meld together and how it's one grand meta-narrative that God has created with his glory at the center of it and Jesus Christ and his redemption of mankind at the heart. Look, look those cross-references up. For instance, here in, Act, here in Acts 17, if you were reading Acts 17 and you were to go to verse 2 where Paul was, uh, it was his custom, he reasoned from the Scriptures explaining and proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer, rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. There are footnotes there that are going to take you to the Old Testament prophecies that show that Jesus, that the Messiah was supposed to suffer that show that the Messiah was supposed to rise from the dead. And and so what's happening then is you're beginning to see and understand and grasp and engage yourself on that deeper level. Notice I still haven't said a commentary. It's nice that I've got a wall full of books. It's nice that Zach has a wall full of books. But in daily Bible reading, that's just not something that you absolutely need. The last thing is write. So clear distractions, read contextually, dig deep, use a good tool, and write. Summarize the main idea of the passage, the section, the paragraph that you're reading. Just say, this is, this is what... This is saying here. And then write a personal application from that. This is what this is a saying. This is what this is a saying. And this is how this plays out in my life. I mean, this, this, is what, this is what we do every Sunday. Honestly, what I've shown you here, this is pretty much the exact same way that Zach would prepare a sermon and that I would prepare a sermon. It's just you on a daily basis allowing God to open a feast before you. For you to engage the scripture yourself. This moves us beyond just reading until you find something that stands out. If you just read until you find something that stands out and you don't understand what it is that actually stands out, again, we're engaging on this surface level. As you write this personal application, you're probably going to see one of two things. There's either going to be a truth to believe 
This is who God is. This is who God says that I am. Lord, give me grace to believe that with all of my heart today. Or there's going to be a command to obey. Because I am redeemed, because I am reconciled, and the Holy Spirit is in me, now Jesus, or God, is telling me this is what I need to now do as a believer. Not to earn God's favor in any way, but as a response of gratitude and a response of obedience. So there's going to be something to believe or a command to obey. God, give me grace for either one of those. And when you're doing this, don't forget that in the middle of it, in the heart of this, is Jesus. That's who they were looking for. That's who these Bereans were looking for. That's who the Old Testament Jews were looking for. And that's who we're always looking for when we read the Scriptures. As I said earlier, read the Old Testament looking forward. Every broken situation is showing our fallen condition and our need for rescue. You read the book of Judges and you're like, this is a mess. These people are goofed up. What is going on here? And you read it and it just should make you long for the fact what they should have been longing for was, you know what, we are incredibly broken by sin. We go our own way. We don't follow God on our own. These people need rescue. And it should point us to the fact that we also need rescue. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. Read the Old Testament looking forward to rescue. Read the Gospels as declaring and proving who Jesus is. And read the epistles looking back on what he has done and what that means for us now and in eternity. Church, if you've been surfing on the level of the Bible, maybe as we end this year and head into a new year, this is a challenge to engage with the Scripture more deeply. And, and you might say, I don't have time. I am so busy, I don't have time. I say this with a smile on my face. But the screen time counters on our phones and the amount of TV we watch say different. Every week, my iPhone, it's on Sunday morning. It's the most convicting thing in the world. It's like literally a few minutes before I get in the pulpit to preach. Here it comes, screen time report for the week. Your screen time was up 50%. I'm like, oh, man. And how much? No, I didn't really engage with the screen. Oh, your screen, it feels like a win. Your screen time was down 5%. Yeah. Yeah, I'm great. We have the time. John Piper said that if social media and Twitter and our phones have any good benefit, that it's going to be that at the last day when we stand before Christ, it will be to prove that we did, in fact, have time to pray and read the Scripture. This is just something... That, that should be, we, we've got to ask God to move it from a, a duty that we feel that we're compelled to do every day, but that, that it's something that we long for and that we look forward to. Get a partner and commit to reading a chapter for a week or five chapters for a week. You can do so much in that time digging deeply. I want to give you an example here. I'm not saying this in any way. This isn't meant to to uh, toot my horn, I don't, I don't read, lead this thing necessarily. We started it about a year and a half ago. But about a year and a half ago, I had a group of five guys, and we get together once a week before work, 6.30 in the morning at Chick-fil-A. And what we've done is we've, we've read five chapters of the Scripture that week. 
That's all. Five chapters. And they've engaged with it. They've written down questions. A lot of times they'll answer questions. I mean, the guys have gotten to where they'll come in. They've got, they've got a, a journaling Bible or something like that or a notebook. And they'll say, well, I noticed this. And the guy said, well, I looked at this and I found this out. And they're answering the questions. And it's getting to the point to where I'm hands off with it. I show up with that. But here's what we've done in a little over a year, reading five chapters a week and just getting together once a week to talk about it. We've read 1 Corinthians, Jude, 2 Corinthians, Titus, 2 Timothy, Acts, Proverbs, Judges, James, 1 and 2 Samuel, Mark, Ephesians, 2nd through 3 John, Hebrews, Isaiah, and now we're in 1 Kings. And next year, our goal in January is to start reading five chapters of the New Testament a week, which means we'll finish exactly in one year if you read five chapters of the New Testament a week. This is something that you can do. Someone in this church, you can say, hey, um, maybe maybe you and I can get together or at least talk and say, let's read these five chapters together and talk about it and engage on a deeper level. Because let me tell you, in the world that we live in and the, the struggles that we face, and those struggles probably going to become more prominent over time, we need Christians who aren't surface-level Christians in their knowledge of God's Word. We need Christians who know the Word, who love the Word, and who engage with the Word. Not just to know things, but also to find comfort and to be able to comfort others and to point them to Christ. Here's the final thing that we see in this passage. We saw, first of all, their approach to the Scripture, and then very quickly we see the power of the Scripture here. Verses 12 through 15. What happened? Many of them believed. There's an important word in there that I didn't read that time. And it's this, therefore. Many of them therefore believed. It was after they had engaged with God's word that they believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This had happened in Thessalonica. Evidently it's wives of the leaders of the city. Greek women who are there at the synagogue. They are seekers of God, and they end up coming to Christ. These important women come to Christ. Other men, some of their husbands, end up coming to Christ. And here's the thing that we need to understand about the Scripture. And when we engage with people, and we want to be people who who evangelize and who give the good news and who witness, it's this. Truth doesn't fear a challenge. We should welcome people studying the Bible. As a matter of fact, if I was you... Yes, it would be my goal to take a friend who doesn't know Christ and to introduce them to the gospel and, and to take them down the Romans road or something like that. But the thing that I would recommend more than anything else is see and pray if you can get them reading the scripture. Hey, would you read the book of John with me? It was Spurgeon who said, Scripture is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose. It will defend itself. It's amazing how many people set out to prove the Bible wrong and begin reading the Scripture and end up becoming believers themselves. Josh McDowell is one. Lee Strobel is one. Uh, there's a doctor in our congregation who had an older man, and he had shared the gospel with him numerous times, and it just didn't click. And he asked the man if he would read the gospel of John, and he gave him a gospel of John. And the guy said, yeah. And a month and a half later, he came back. He said, you know what? I read the gospel of John. I trusted Jesus. I believe Jesus. It was the word of God that did it. Do we believe what Romans 10 says, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God? So let's be willing to... Move beyond 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and see if we can take people who we love and encourage them to read the Scripture. We see here the power of the Scripture to save many believed, including these women of high standing. We have to get the Scripture to people to do its work. The next thing we see is the Scripture's power to separate. We see the Scripture's power to separate. Here's the pattern that happens all over the book of Acts. It happened in Philippi. It happened in Thessalonica right before this. You preach the Word. You give the Word. There is fruit that comes from the Word. And when that fruit comes from the Word, guess what happens? Satan fights back. In this circumstance, and in many of the circumstances Paul faced, there was persecution. For us, it's probably not going to be somebody trying to kill us, but for us, it is probably going to be at times somebody just not down with what we're saying. There's a young woman in our church who works in a certain field, and she texted our young pros group the other day. and She said, y'all, it's just getting to me, the constant joking about Christians and putting them down and the sly remarks and those type things. Yes, that is something that can happen, and it will happen. But if we are deeply engaged in God's Word, we will have the comfort and the strength that we need in that. Here, the the blowback comes this way. It wasn't people from Berea, a bunch of people from Thessalonica, who had chased Paul out of Thessalonica, come to Berea. And now they're causing trouble there. The way that the old King James Version calls those people in Thessalonica, it calls them lewd fellows of the baser sort. These guys, they come from Thessalonica, and now they are in Berea, and they are trying to chase Paul out there. And so Paul is immediately sent away. We have to understand that what is happening here is the word of God is declared, and Satan never rests. So declare the word of God. Engage with the word of God and expect the pushback, but don't fear the pushback. He's a defeated foe. He's a toothless lion. If you're a believer, his bark is far worse than his bite. Paul faces this trouble. He's chased out. He's sent to the coast to go to Athens, and in Athens... He's going to, and you can read the rest of that later on if you want, in Athens, he's going to engage with people in a different way. He's not going to be engaging with Jewish people there. He's going to be engaging with pagan Greeks who believe in hundreds of gods, and he's going to engage with them in a different way. But here he found these people, the Bereans, who were willing to approach the Scripture with eagerness, intensity, Engaging it deeply, being teachable. He meets them, and many of them come to Christ. He meets them, and I think that Luke, I know that Luke is commending them to us as a pattern for us to follow as well as we engage with God's Word. If you don't mind, heads bowed, eyes closed for a moment. You know, I like to ask a question sometimes at the end of a sermon. It's this So what? What does this mean for me? What does this look like on the ground? I think the first question I would ask is this. What is your attitude about the Scripture? Is it a surface engagement? Or is it the spirit and heart of a Berean who is diving deeply and engaging deeply? You know, 
I've, I've experienced so much preaching in my life that's do this, do better. And if you walk out of here thinking today, I've got to do better. I'm going to read my Bible more. You are destined for failure. It is, Lord, I want to have a heart that longs for God's word like this. Lord, would you, would you change my heart? Holy Spirit, would you give me grace for this? And then trust him as you go along. What is your attitude about the scripture? The second question I would ask is, what are you looking for when you read the scripture? Is it who God is and who Jesus is and what this means for my life and my community and my church? Or is it, again, a surface level that just basically is asking, what am I reading here that can make my life better? Now, that's one way to read the scripture every day. Let me see, what can I find that's going to make my day easier? It's going to make my day better. It's going to make my coworkers like me. What are you looking for? Ways to make life better or Jesus? And then the final thing I would say is, are you convinced yourself? What, what Paul is talking about here with Jesus, that, that he had to suffer and rise from the dead, and he did suffer and rise from the dead, and that he died in your place and that he's willing to save you from your sins, that you don't have to earn it, that it's a gift, that you can stop trying to be good in order to get to heaven, and you can trust the goodness of Jesus who died in your place, who takes your sin, and who gives you his righteousness if you trust in him. Are you convinced of that yourself? And if you haven't been convinced of that yourself, I would love to talk with you afterwards. I know Brant Wood, Zach Wood, when he gets back. Uh, David Wood, Lord, uh, we know that we would love to take the scripture and show you how you can believe yourself. Don't let that opportunity pass. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that on the backside of this, that we would find joy in engaging with the Scripture. Lord, that uh, starting with me and everyone here, that in this next year, that we would be people on the backside who know more of your Word, love more of your Word, see more of Jesus in the Word, who find your Word sweeter than honey to us and the greatest joy in our life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.